Digital Care Futures podcast series is a collaboration between the Sustainable Care Research Programme, funded by the Economic and Social Research Council, and the Technology Enabled Care Strategy Board, TSA, the industry and advisory body for the UK tech sector. For each podcast, we invite expert guests to explore with us the challenges and opportunities technology can bring to care and caring. Hello and welcome to the second of our Sustainable Care Programme and Tech Services Association podcasts. Today, myself and my co-host Eve Solomon from the TSA are going to be talking to and about startups and innovators and the challenges and and opportunities they face in in the care sector. Um, And we're going to reflect first on some of our experiences, um, both from the research side and also from the TSA's perspective. So, As part of the Sustainable Care Programme, we did a series of stakeholder engagement uh, consultations where we spoke to various different actors in the care ecosystem, um, including commissioners of services, um, people in the technology-enabled care sector, people in the care technology sector, care providers, people receiving support and services, unpaid carers, to try and explore the sorts of issues they were they were facing around, around technology and care um, and something that kept coming up was the the increasingly confusing technology and care marketplace and, and and being able to navigate this and tease out what different providers what different technology could could be beneficial for, for all these different stakeholders commissioners were finding it challenging they were finding it difficult to perhaps take a chance on, on newer and smaller organisations um, and move away from some of the more traditional uh, tech providers. Um, there were also issues for some care providers who were finding it difficult to include technology in, in their services and it's increasingly a requirement to include some sort of technology in their, in their services, both from a commissioner perspective, but also you know, the expectations of, of service users as well. Um, and there were also challenges from those needing care and support to try and navigate this marketplace if, if self-funding. And part of the challenge was the increasing number of startups and what concerns about longevity and the ability for those organisations to scale up and continue to provide excellent customer service. But we also spoke to startups and they were finding it really hard. They were finding it hard to get their, find, make their way in this marketplace, to convince commissioners of services who might be slightly risk averse to to try and convince them to go beyond a pilot and to, to invest, invest at scale, really. So those are some of the things that we found in our in our research. And I, I wonder, Eve, if you want to come in and talk really about the TSA's experience of working with startups and innovators. I think um, for innovators and startups, they would really benefit from truly putting themselves into the, the shoes of commissioners. You know, what is it that's keeping them up at night? Um, commissioners are being presented with you know, a huge plethora of different uh, technology solutions and it's how do they choose which one. So it's, it's absolutely critical that innovators are clearly demonstrating what sets them apart from the petition. How are they future-proofing their product? Yes, there's a lot of innovation in, in the sector, but are they future-proofing their technology? Will they still be the product of choice in two years, three years' time? Commissioners are becoming also increasingly wise to collaborative approaches. So the days of creating something in a sort of a siloed bubble are firmly over now. So it's how can you demonstrate that that your product is open protocol, that you've considered 
how it fits into the overall service wraparound from beginning to end. So how does, does your product solve just one problem or does it solve four? Are you in conversations with, with services um, and how does it fit into that? It's also uh, critical that uh, innovators are considering how their product feeds into the proactive and preventative agenda and, and even more so the personalization. We now have a situation where health, housing and social care are all, there's a commonality of language being used now, which is uh, fantastic. It's something we've been working towards for a while and, that's, and it's an agenda that we're going to be really, TSA is significantly going to be running with for the next 12 months. So in order to really be relevant, um, it's about demonstrating how your product sort of feeds into that. What are you doing to demonstrate that? Um, and again, that we see an increased commitment to working in an interoperable way. You know, what are you doing to put, put that in place as well? And I think the key point is creating a product that can show the mark of quality. So a commissioner is going to be concerned about whether their product is safe for the service user and it's safe also for the health professional that's using it. And suppliers would be missing a trick if they didn't produce a product that was very much embedded in a quality framework from the get-go. There's, there's a lot of talk about innovation, but there doesn't seem to be quite as much talk about trust and confidence. And I think when you're dealing in a sector that is about people, and keeping people safe. This is an absolute key point, not only in its production values, but also in the, in the key messages that the suppliers are trying to get out in their marketing. You know, is your product uh, trustworthy? Can the commissioner have confidence in it? And I think that is a real key point that's overlooked. TSA's quality standard framework um, is now being positioned alongside CQC and um, even the NHS's internal audit programme. We've seen evidence of this in Liverpool, and this is only going to become uh, more apparent. So suppliers would be really missing a trick if they didn't consider quality as a real sort of benchmark in the production of their products. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's also the safety, not just of, of people, which is obviously paramount, but data as well and how it flows with some of these systems that are being introduced and, and who owns that data how is it stored is it is it safe well thank you I, I think we can now welcome our guests so i'm delighted today to welcome three quite different startups in the technology enabled care services and care technology sector um, who all have a slightly different approach to technology in the care ecosystem. They have slightly different focus, slightly different models. And I just want to introduce them all to you now and then talk through their experiences. So um, first I'd like to welcome um, Hector Alexander from Yokuru. Would you don't mind telling us a little bit about yourself and about what Yokuru do? Hi Kate, hi Eve. Thanks very much. Nice to meet you. So my brother and I founded Yokuru about a year ago. Uh, we saw there's a move towards being more proactive and more preventative in the delivery of care. And we realized that everyone has a home phone at home. It's the most digitally inclusive platform being able to pick up the phone and speak to someone. So we built a platform that allows one human operator to speak to 10,000 service users in half an hour and check on their well-being. And so we've been working with care providers, local authorities and monitoring centers to um, to help them support their communities better. 
Thank you, Hector. And that's so interesting. And it chimes in with an, another podcast we've done, which is looking at that proactive and preventative approach to technology, which is we've seen in other parts of the world. It's very famously in Barcelona, but it's something that in the UK we're only really, I think, moving towards instead of the sort of very reactive traditional systems, which jump in an emergency rather than are there trying to prevent an emergency from happening in the first place. Thank you. Um, I'd also like to welcome um, Darren Crombie from Bridget Care. Hi, Darren. Can you talk, tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, thanks, Kate. And I think it, it really kind of links in with what Hector was saying there that, you know, as an organisation at Bridget Care, we're looking to really support family carers and help them to um, deliver preventive care to their loved ones. Um, so my, my name is Darren Crombie. I should probably introduce myself at the start. Um, and I'm the founder of, of Bridget Care. And my background was really working in the health and care system for about 20 years with commissioners and um, really big health integrators. And what, what we really saw is that a lot of the traditional tech we were putting in wasn't really working. It wasn't changing outcomes. And we we kept investing in technology for doctors and nurses, um, which was which was great to treat sick patients, but not very good for prevention. So through that journey, we really learned that, that there's this massive army out there of seven and a half million family carers in the UK who do an amazing job, um, like me and my sister who look after my granddad, um, to keep their loved ones well and out of um, high cost care. Um, so what we've been building is a platform for them. So we've built a, a set of home monitoring um, products that help and provide accessible tools for looking after granddad. Uh, we've got an app um, for the care themselves. Um, and we've launched a carer shop as well, because we recognize it's really hard as a carer to find the support you need. So we've got a personalized carer shop. We can go in, find the products out there for you based on your needs uh, and then get help today. Thank you, Darren. That was, that was something that really came up in our findings, this sort of difficulty that carers who are really struggling with a lack of time because they're, they're balancing often work and other responsibilities with care in finding information and support and advice from somewhere they can trust and somewhere that is, is sort of impartial. So that's really helpful. Thank you. Neil Eastwood from Care Friends has a slightly different focus. And I think it's really great that we've got quite a different range of different startups here today with different focuses on different parts of the care ecosystem. And I'd just like you to introduce Care Friends, really, because I think it's a really fascinating organisation. No, thanks, Kate. It's um... Yes, yeah, so this is uh, focused entirely on the workforce and it's a problem I've been trying to solve for about 13 years and that is how do we recruit and retain, um, you know, an effective high quality professional workforce and um, years and years of research pointing me all the time to something obvious that I, it took me a long time to, to penny to finally drop and that is that the mechanism of finding the highest quality longer staying care staff is employee referral. And then I looked at an employee referral scheme and they're just clunky and, uh, you know, torn poster somewhere and the care staff forget. And I wondered if we can gamify, if we can remove the friction from that by giving an app to care workers and rewarding them with points and a point is a pound for different stages as their friend moves through the recruitment process, they get rewards. Can that change? Can that remove the friction? And if so, how many people out there are possibly available to be recruited. And that's the journey we're going on with Care Friends. Thank you. So yeah, we've got some really interesting startups all focusing on different parts of that care ecosystem, different challenges, you know, the workforce challenge, the unpaid carer challenge and how we support them to do such an important job, shifting services to prevention rather than reaction, 
I'd like to talk to you, I don't want to be pessimistic, but to talk about the challenges you've faced as startups in, in, in working in this space. Um, maybe I'll start with, with Neil first this time. Goodness, yeah, I'll try and keep it brief. <laughs> so I think the, I mean, uh, perhaps unlike some startups, uh, I've been, you know, I understand the sector uh, deeply. So there wasn't an issue on navigating that world. The challenge has been primarily building an app which we we didn't have a i didn't have a technical co-founder so we were always on the back foot i outsourced the tech development and that has been fraught uh continues to be fraught and then trying to understand how to get this into a very fragmented sector so we we for to use care friends that you need the care staff to be told about it and to be excited to download the app you need a recruiter to operate it and as soon as a candidate comes in they have to do something about it promptly and you need the manager or the owner of the business or the senior management or the hr directors to be on site too so we had key stakeholders we needed to involve and we launched in june 2020 so kind of mid two peaks of covid uh, and so it was a really difficult environment to launch into with a lot of distraction and, you know, kind of panic and care businesses not really coping with planning ahead. They were very much more reactive uh, to, you know, all of the things that were going on. So so I think that maybe was a situational issue, but we do find that the, you know, we need a registered manager to, re to be aware of this. And often that as a demographic cohort tend to be older females who their whole life has been about removing risk and taking a risk and technology is something that can be you know difficult for them to understand so um we see with the app huge successes uh, but also disappointments and it's the same platform so the question then is it's down to a co-production between us and uh you know the individual care organization and often the smaller ones are the ones that don't have the resources in order to deal with, uh, you know, if we deliver a high quality candidate that's recommended by a friend, 20% of them are never even contacted. So we know our technology has to go further to do more nudges, more reminders. So yeah, it's a, it's a journey. That's really interesting, that whole buy-in piece. And the, yeah, you say the sort of frictionless, but also the nudge that doesn't tip over into being too obtrusive, but at the same time gets people to action something. Thank you, Darren. Do you want to reflect on what challenges you faced as a startup? Yeah, so uh, firstly, just want to say any start listening to this, be optimistic, be positive. There is so much opportunity to change um, this space and change the world. So, you know, give it a go. But with that, recognise it's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. Uh, you're going to have lots of sleepless nights as running a startup because, you know, things that are worthwhile are hard uh, to achieve. And in this space, the, the big three challenges for me is, is one, funding. And I think we'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. Um, to responsibility. So when I mean responsibility, I mean that the councils today are not responsible for preventative care delivery. So when we speak to a council and we talk about the amazing jobs that family carers do and how they can deliver a, a really uh, shift to preventative care, um, they say, great, love the efficacy studies where we can say we can deliver 14 to one, but say, actually, that's not my job. So my job in adult social care services today um, is to commission a service that basically responds when somebody pushes the button. It's not to deliver a service that stops somebody from needing to push that button in the first place. So for me, until we actually shift that responsibility and make that an obligation of councils to be responsible for preventative care or recognise that there's other organisations and charities out there in the voluntary sector that are doing that today, 
then we're not going to be able to really um, shift what we do. And we'll stay in this space where we have trial to trial, but we don't have broader adoption of those newer technologies. And I think the last one um, for me is the ecosystem. So we, we know who the big players are. Um, I've been out for dinner with some of them and, uh, you know, I get where those guys are at. You know, they're in a tricky position where they've got lots of clients to support today with the legacy technology. They do want to shift uh, across, but it's hard for them. Um, so what I would love to say to them is that, you know, there's opportunities here to partner with startups like ourselves. You don't have to look after that 1.7 million clients in this space on your own. Uh, we can we can help you innovate as well. So, um, you know, we can help transition that ecosystem from that responsive system to a proactive system if we work together. Thank you, Darren. Yeah, there's that hearts and minds and yeah, shifting. Hector, do you want to reflect on this as well? Because you obviously have gone in there and done some, got, got some commissioned contracts and, and maybe you've overcome some of those challenges, I don't know. Yeah, Darren, what you're saying about staying positive really resonates. And I think that just generally, it's much easier if you just know from the start that this is a very long-term game and everyone's playing a long-term game. And, you know, it doesn't take three months or six months to get into the market, but it takes a year's or, or more. So when we started, we got a couple of council contracts and very early wins. And that was largely because of the pandemic and our solution was directly supporting people because of that. So councils in that specific moment for this specific use case moved very, very quickly. Now, since then, we started to look around at how the actual market works and, and how the ecosystem works and who's buying from who and who's trusted. And we recognized that Yes, one thing is selling directly to commissioners, and that's something we spend a lot of time doing. But I would also recommend having a look at the other players in the space and perhaps designing solutions for those larger players. Because as Darren's just said, everyone wants to innovate in the space and everyone sees the potential. And actually, well, what I've seen directly is there's been a lot of the inertia from innovation is potentially because of you know just workflows that have been set in stone for 20 or 30 years. It's not from ambitions of the senior people within those organizations, nor actually anyone in, in those organizations. Everyone sees all the solutions that are on the market and says, yeah, we'd love to use them. But there's just quite a lot of hurdles and red tape is red tape's necessary, but there's also a lot of red tape that needs to um, be solved before things you know, are used at scale. So I highly recommend talking to the other players in the market and, you know, and promoting the fact that you have open APIs, promoting the fact that you are looking at models that work not just in the UK, but across Europe and drawing from these, those other experiences. And we asked ourselves a question right at the beginning of the process, which is how do you identify unmet needs in a community? And we built the platform to directly do that. And lo and behold, in Spain, banks and banks of call center operators are making human outbound calls at a vast scale, whereas 5% of calls in the UK are, are outbound. In, in Spain, there's like 80% are outbound. So maybe looking at other markets, which are further ahead in terms of the proactive or preventative agenda, is, an also, is also a thing um, to look at as a startup. Yes, yeah, certainly that red tape came up again in our uh, consultation, not just from a startup perspective in terms of their frustration, but even commissioners of services finding 
sort of being locked into five-year commissioning processes and, and not being able to take opportunities that come up in the middle of that, you know, to, to diverge. And where they do it, you know, it's a pilot, it's small scale. It's, and then how do you scale that? How do you spread that? How do you, how do you make it sustainable? And that being quite difficult. Some of the big players that are bidding for these five-year contracts are now including things like marketplaces within those bids. So they're also looking to adopt like innovative solutions. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And and something you touched on with was the COVID nineteen pandemic as being a bit of a facilitator. And I wondered if and we, we recorded a separate podcast on on the changes that the pandemic brought in terms of care and technology. And there were examples, you know, things that were thought impossible that suddenly became possible during the pandemic, like NHS mail for care care providers. That's been a stumbling block for years, and suddenly, you know, it's 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 happened. Um, commissioners shifting to new models that they they just had to get up and, and go with. And I don't wondered if um, Darren, you'd like to reflect on anything you you think is a facilitator. Maybe it's not the pandemic. Maybe it's other things like funding that, that's helped. With COVID, um, I, I'm not sure it's necessarily driven innovation. I think it's driven catch up. There's lots of stuff we should have been doing before that we weren't, and everybody kind of knew that. Um, and that's great because I think it's it's brought us to where we need to be to actually then build on top of that with with innovative approaches. Specifically, we, we obviously saw a drive from some of the stuff we do in remote video consultation support for the community nurses we support, the mental health practitioners. That was a was a great shift and, and actually I think it's helped a lot of patients that maybe shouldn't have been travelling um, in for consultations which they could have done remote. It would bridge it though. I think for us, the really positive thing has been that there is funding out there for innovation that's looking to tackle the social care crisis. So we were really lucky in that we... Um, got £100,000 uh, nearly of funding um, early last year to, to prove our concept that we could empower family carers and, and save the social care system. Um, and then based on the efficacy study for that, we got um, nearly a million pounds of support to help us grow that, grow the team and really shift from a team of three people sat in a tiny room to a team of 15 people sat in a slightly bigger room, um, really trying to wrap our arms around those family carers and, and help grow what we do. Um, so there's, there's funding there to, to do the innovation piece, although, you know, it takes time. So you know, you're looking at six months to kind of go through those grant processes and, and get award if you're successful. The bit that we're still struggling on is what comes next. So great, you've got a product, uh, you've proven that it can deliver value. Um, you've proven that you can do it in a way which doesn't impact the existing health and social care teams. What next? Where does that broader funding come from to help you drive and scale the solution? And as a business, that's kind of where we're at. So, you know, do we continue our journey in the UK or do we actually look outside UK now? Because maybe that funding's not in our home country. Um, and they're the challenges now as a business we're looking at, you know, how do we scale? Do we stay here? Do we go, go elsewhere or do we do both? Does the funding to grow the business come from customers or would you have to be looking elsewhere for that? I mean, for us, we've kind of looked at lots of different models. So you're looking at um, council commissioning, the shift to the integrated care systems would be perfect for what we do. So we're all about empowering family carers across the region, uh, but the funding's not there in the ICSs yet for, for that type of service. Um, so then we've looked at home care providers, but you know they're, they're quite small in terms of the, their scale. So then it's you know, really, really getting on board one of the franchises. But then also for us, it's, it's about that direct consumer approach. So we do support directly family carers across the UK with our services as well. Yeah, funding, I think, is, is a, 
blessing, but also there's also challenges around the, the sustainability and when that funding ends. And we have seen a, a boom in funding in some areas. You know, there are lots of there are schemes for collaborations with academics. There are schemes, you know, some of the organisations I spoke to have received European funding, which obviously is not on the table anymore. And it's where do you look and where do you find it? And how do you stay abreast of all of that? Neil, I wondered if you had, had any thoughts on things that were facilitated you. I know you began, well, you launched during the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, funding is always a problem. And we looked at um, uh, the kind of grants available. And I think uh, the other guys, you know, Darren, hate to have a kind of more let's say, uh, you know, a, a clearer proposition for those grants. They fit more neatly into those, I think, than us. We were slightly, you know, a, a bit of an unusual case. And we did get EU funding for our pilots in Cornwall. But th that, although we're grateful for it, the administration was just on me. And uh, you, we had to match fund it. So it actually, because they paid most of it l late, you know, after you filled in all the forms, I actually created more cash flow stress for me. Uh, and we looked at other uh, grants, but they tend to be, you know, you have to kind of move at the speed they're moving and we were moving quite quickly. So we have about 25,000 uh, app users and we're in Australia and Ireland and we'll be in America later in the year. And it's, I mean, the growth is a problem. Uh, it's a big problem trying to keep up with it, but uh, we just feel like we can't, can't do grant funding. And we've been funded primarily by customers prepaying uh, for an annual contract. And that's what's fed us but you know you're always then fretting about the next sale and of course you know I, i'm sure the guys would would agree you know you'd as a ceo you're constantly trying to decide with limited resources we've only had two hundred thousand pounds worth of funding is like well where do we where do we put this money and, and most of it gets into dev and then oh no wait we need customer success because we have to support our customers too and oh we didn't do anything with sales and then you know i'm doing all the invoicing in the evening and doing all the payroll and oh no it'd be nice to have a finance person so so it's just been uh, really difficult when, when, when you get up to scale talking to bigger providers and we found this particularly in in Australia where it's a much more consolidated market where they they said there's a 200 page security document could you fill that in are you, are you ISO 2000 and whatever it is and when's your last penetration test and we want the server in Sydney uh, and you know this architectural cost so I have a rule now that anyone comes near me they just give me an invoice for five grand that seems to be everything <laughs> that we do costs five grand so yeah I mean if you're interested in what the other guys feel but it's it's trying to scale something and all of the costs that come with that and all of you know with a small team you can't I've got about the same number of staff as, as Darren excluding our outsourced dev team and there still aren't people to do critical parts of the job Neil I feel your pain you know it's hard right doing 20 different things and not doing them all that well because you're doing 20 different things but the, the on the funding side I think that that's something people should be aware of that, that the amount of time it takes to get what we call innovation funding now I, I kind of love some of the stuff that NHSX are doing but for example this week there's a, an AI um, care award so it's kind of 750k plus which is great but you submit your application today, you go for a process and you might get funded in May next year. So that's the kind of conversations you're having with a team. That that's, that's the wrong way to get the funding. And, you know, as a startup, who knows what you're going to be doing in eight months time? Because, you know, eight months ago, we were doing lots of stuff that we're not doing today. Uh, and today we're doing lots of stuff we weren't doing then. So stuff changes. And, and it's hard, I guess, for these organizations like NHXX to really have really accelerated approval cycles on what is quite large chunks of cash. 
Yeah, some of the startups I spoke to, there's that lag in, in getting the funding, but then there's also the match funding issue that Neil talks about is, is quite a prevalent model. And then the fact that you get paid the quarter after you've made the expense, you paid the expenses. So you you know you have to have quite a lot of cash flow to be able to do it really. And that, that being quite challenging in, in lean and small organisations. Eve, did you want to come in um, about some of this sort of capturing benefits and impact and how, how you make that persuasive case and capture hearts and minds really? In terms of benefits realisation, how are you able to demonstrate the impact of your solutions on both outcomes for individuals, the care professional, and for the services you support? So Yokuru is uh, very simply a way in which providers can understand someone's needs. And therefore, we're really like a data, we're like a data engagement product. So when we boil it right down, what does it do? It reaches out to a large number of people and collects data about those individuals. And the data we're collecting is things like, has someone taken their medication? Or whether someone's happy with the service that their monitoring center has provided, etc. And so from the outset, we have a huge amount of data, not just about the service users that we're, we're speaking with, but also about the effectiveness, the efficacy of the technology itself. And we very much lead every single conversation with those numbers because yeah, we, we really focus on what those outcomes are. And yeah, we, we have some nice case studies in terms of like the individual stories, but really we prefer to look at the numbers in aggregate and start to say, okay, this is the number of people that you were speaking to prior to using Yokuru, and this is the number of needs identified, et cetera. And, and we, we very openly share a lot of that information. And I think that has really helped with our relationships with our customers because it allows us to be very transparent and them to be very transparent with why they would be using this type of technology. And critically, everyone is very focused, it seems, on an ROI. And so not only can we show an ROI in terms of, you know, pounds saved, but we can also show an ROI in terms of, you know, number of unmet needs identified. That was what I was going to ask. Do different parts of your consumers, your, your clients, are there different stories you need to tell them? Are there different ways of measuring that return on investment that are more persuasive to different groups? Do commissioners want something slightly different from a different group of people that you might be selling to? Yeah, I guess so. And I, the this kind of links into our previous conversation just about funding as well, which is with, with both of these, we're building as a startup a tool that solves a problem. And the more specific and niche that problem is, the easier it is to say, this is the percentage outcome of using the tool. These are the numbers related to using the tool. And so when it comes to fundraising or trying to get grants, et cetera, when you go really, really niche with the problem that you're solving, suddenly it becomes very clear to people, oh, this is a tool that can help in this case because, and these are the outcomes from using the tool. So I, I think for stuff, well, I've seen in our journey, when we go very broad and we start to do many things, it becomes very hard to express what we're doing. But when we get right down and get very niche, it's easier to secure funding and it's easier to fundamentally, I guess, sell the product because people can get the products and they understand, oh, this is the problem that I have and this is the tool that will solve it. Darren, do you want to come in with any comment on the benefits realisation piece? 
Yeah, I, I just just picking on Hector's point there on ROI. I think you know when I used to work on more on the NHS commissioning side, I think we kind of joked that if every solution that we got had the ROI that it proposed, then we wouldn't actually have to pay for the NHS anymore. It'd be free, and you know every case study we put together or business case in the NHS always has you know a, a significant ROI, and unfortunately those those things don't always materialise. Um, for for us, you know, it is important to have the ROI. You need that for the commissioning discussion. Um, but really, we're about three things. So, can we improve the lives of the carers that we support? Um, can we improve the care that they provide to their loved ones? And in doing so, can we save the health system? They're, they're the three kind of big ticket items we're looking at. Um, and we built a social return on investment model for that, um, as well as a, a as an ROI model, uh, because we're uh, for, foremost a social enterprise. So. For us, the social side is as important as the the business side, really, in terms of what we're trying to achieve. Um, and when you look into that, you know, we've had quite useful support um, on that journey. So we've been lucky to have those grants to cover off support from academic health science networks, research partners, um, York University, Hall University, bringing in those guys to basically do a job which is is tricky. It's hard trying to look at a system and say, did we actually deliver a benefit in what we did? And, and when you look at prevention, it's harder than ever because what I do today, you know, going for a walk outside may help me in four years down the line, you know, but it's not going to help me next week. And, and that's the tricky bit with ROI models when you look at prevention rather than the kind of emergency responsive systems that we've got. In. Yeah, on the ROI point, we are trying to promote a more proactive delivery of care. And so we look at places like Spain and they have a very proactive delivery of um, proactive care delivery model. And so then I'm thinking, okay, let's get, let's get hold of some research that proves all of this. And fundamentally there isn't that much research out there, especially in the UK, there's been almost no research done into what the actual ROI is of delivering a more proactive model and a more preventative model. Um, I know that the TSA is working on this a lot with ADAS and trying to pull together like research partners, et cetera but I haven't seen very much um, it by way of like hard numbers into the actual realized benefits over say a medium term of, across perhaps a large cohort of people into the real benefits of this type of model. Although it is being wide, it is being adopted more and more. And I think conceptually everyone sort of gets it. Yeah, I think that is true. That is, it has been a challenge, that whole prevention piece for the reasons that Darren sort of says, how, how do you, say with any certainty that X prevented Y when, and, and something that the commissioners we spoke to found that sort of expressed was even if they could prove prevention that might be prevention for the health service and that's a separate budget a separate system so you know this sort of very siloed approach didn't really help them in, in that case. Um, Neil do you want to talk a bit about how you capture the, the outcomes of what you do? Yeah, so it's it's actually really quite. I mean, I'm probably in a much better position than the other guys in terms of that it's very measurable because we're just hiring people. Now, what we've had to educate the market on is that is that candidates and new hires are not equal in in the care world. So, so typically a care provider is on you know um, addicted to internet job boards and they and it seems very easy and they hire people and the average length of time they stay into hours of care delivered is 180. Uh, and whereas employee referrals are over 4,000 hours of care before they leave or, or whatever happens. So 
So measuring cost per hire, you might say, oh, well, my add-on indeed is free, which increasingly is not the case, but those people don't stay. If uh, in our model, the, the costs, if you like, are made up of two components, the license fee are divided by the, you know, each individual hire. So there's a li annual license fee. And also they're paying the points or the referral reward to their member of staff. Now, obviously that's going to their member of staff, which is a great place for it to go rather than an internet job board or third party uh, recruitment company. But nonetheless, we carry two components of cost. And so we need to demonstrate that we, by using the app, we are the delta between what they had before and what we what we deliver is significant enough for for those costs to be carried. And in most cases, it, it, it is in almost all cases, it is. And also, the dashboard is measuring all of this live, we know the moment someone is hired. And that has been a huge relief to have a dashboard with live data on. And that's always been a huge problem for the whole sector is workforce data is so hard to get from providers that don't tell you what's going on. So we've got some advantages, although, you know, in the current crisis, the workforce crisis, then uh, providers are so kind of uh, struggling, panicking with 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 recruitment that, um, you know, to launch Care Friends does require some forward thinking uh, and a change in behavior. And uh, and so some are taking that taking that step and others others aren't. But we, you know, fundamentally, one of the kind of measures that my favorite measures in terms of our success is how much money are going into the pockets of care workers through through performance, through rec becoming recruiters. And, and as of right now, since we launched last year, it's £850,000. And I think that's money they wouldn't have got. And so that is a message that, um, you know, will bring other care workers on board because they feel they're part of a system that's growing. And I think, you know, it's, it's getting that word out to everybody that's going to help because providers will feel like, oh, you know, I, you get to a point where they'll they'll say everyone else is doing this and I should too. But to get something into the mainstream is incredibly hard. And I heard a, a great analogy, which I'm sure the guys will will uh, will resonate with them as well, is that you, you know, a startup like this is like a massive freight train in the station with a mini engine, and you're screaming the mini engine as much as you can to get some movement. And eventually, you start getting movement. And once you get momentum, life gets a lot easier because it can't be stopped. But trying to get going is the thing. Yeah, I, I can see that in the sector that is so so under such pressure that the, the idea of what your your product can do is around not just the recruitment, but around the retention, which is the big challenge in the sector, the churn, the waste of you know retraining and retraining people because they move organizations. Care friends potentially has a means to address that because people you know recruit their friends who they know are like-minded people and they will probably stay longer within that organization but it's persuading those organizations that are under dire pressure that they need to do this and you know they, you know it's a few more clicks or it's you know it's another thing for them to do which i think yeah it's it must be very very challenging well thank you all for joining us today um i'd just like to go back around and, and just see if you've got any key messages or thoughts for other startups in the sector or or the marketplace really who, who you want to be selling to so i'll start with hector yeah thanks kate i have a couple of things to say to startups who are in this space uh, first of all ally yourself with organizations like adas and the tsa and tax advisory and begin to build those networks as early as possible because not only are they a great way to bounce ideas 
uh, off, but they're also a good way to get access to potential customers or potential collaborators. And it's um, a very easy early thing to do. And I know those organizations are actively reaching out all the time to startups. So they might find you in the same way that the TSA called us up. Um, but I do recommend doing that. Uh, and also, I, as I've alluded to already, I recommend just getting very niche with the problem that you're solving and trying to think as, as specific as possible because then people get it. And then it makes the whole process much easier. And later on down the line, when as Neil's um, steam engine is rolling at full speed, when that's going, then you can start doing lots of other things and building lots of other tools. But first of all, just start small and start niche. Thank you, Hector. Darren, did you want to summarize? Yeah, it's great. And it's great to listen to Neil and Hector as well. Um, so thanks, guys. Um, it's helped me today, actually, being on the, the podcast. And um, I think one of the things we say to our carry community is you're not alone. Um, and I think for, for startups, we need to remember that as well. We're a, we're a collective of people trying to innovate and, and make a difference. Um, and if anybody wants one-to-one um, -one support from me, kick ideas around or shake ideas down or whatever, then then feel free to, to get in touch. I think to Hector's point there, you know, starting small and, and specifics great. And I think the other thing for any startup is just find your story. So what is it that brought you to the point where you decided to come up with this idea? And why do you feel you're the person that's going to be able to make that reality? And um, because if you've got that, then you've got a startup. Um, and that's one of the hardest things, you know, finding your story, finding what makes you special. Thank you, Darren. And that's certainly something we found on this, this program of work. So I work on the technology piece, but I also work on another piece of work that's looking at emerging um, home care models. And it is that story. So many of the startup innovators are people who have experienced frustrations with the existing system and want to change things. And they have a very clear story and they have very uh, personal experience. And that is what drives them. That's what gives that locomotive that <laughs> a little push, I think. Um, Neil. Yeah, thanks, uh, Kate. And to, it's, uh, I would echo Darren's point that just just hearing, you know, Darren Hector's experiences is it makes it helps me because it's a very lonely thing. I mean, certainly during the COVID period where we've all been kind of, you know, my whole team is uh, separated, all working from home, you know, trying to learn the job of a CEO, which keeps changing uh, and trying to keep up with everything has been really difficult. So networks are really really helpful and i think you know there's a narrative about entrepreneurs and how successful it all is and how easy it is and of course that's the focus on the very few you know that have that become unicorns and there's so much other great work going on and i think we don't hear about that and and so it's great to share some of the challenges even if you don't get them solved but talking to to um, you know, guys like Darren and Hector, I find other CEOs, they'd say, oh, don't do this or try that. And you save yourself so much time. Just, you know, people are so willing to give. And I think probably the reason I work in adult social care is it's a, it's a very giving sector anyway. And I think talking to people who are trying to make things better uh, has been really, really uh, helpful. I think in terms of um, advice, if I gave, give any to people starting out on this journey, I mean, it, I think Hector said it's a long journey and we, I realised we incorporated the company, I incorporated the company three years ago on last Friday and um, reflected on the journey so far. And I, I think there's an area where I did quite well by putting a lot of effort in, into the user interface and into the user experience around the app and the app was used by care workers and I didn't want to make assumptions. So, so I think 
the more you can do around the human technical technological interface is so so important because that that drives a lot of adoption if people find it easy to use and so the more testing you can do um, as early as possible i would say is really important so we did i thought really well on the on the app side what i completely forgot was we have a whole admin portal which needs to be used by recruiters and i just thought oh, we'll just chuck some buttons in there and some other stuff and of course they were the ones that non were non-compliant and then of course that brings the whole system down how could i have missed that so it's looking at the, all of your stakeholders anyone coming into contact with the system and i think you know good user design uh, interface design isn't you know shouldn't be expensive but the more effort you put into that things get a lot lot easier and it also helps you think about a simple simple pathway user pathway so that's been one of my uh, biggest learnings Thank you. That's a really great point. Um, Eve, do you have anything you would like to add in terms of tips and, and, and advice for startups? Only that, um, you know, if we're looking at uh, procurement options, commissioners are really wanting to see evidence of flexibility and lots of routes to market. So if you're on a, a framework in particular, do shout about that in your uh, marketing, whether that's through a case study or any other marketing asset. Also, when you're creating uh, marketing materials, uh, whether that be a case study or a blog, do write specifically um, for your audience. Really be persona driven. Don't feel that you have to sort of nail all your messaging in, in one uh, piece of, of communications. Don't be afraid to write several case studies, all with slight adaptations. Um, you wouldn't go for a job interview and send out the same CV to 10 employers. You, you would always adapt it. And it's, and it's the same with product marketing. So that, that's just a, it seems like an obvious point, but it, I'd probably say that's quite a key, key point there. Well, thank you all for joining me. So thank you to, to Hector and, and Darren and, e, and Neil um, and Eve for, for co-hosting with me today. We hope to join you for the next of our um, podcast, which is looking at the digital switchover and its implications for technology and care. Thank you. Thank you.